think I may speak. I'd like to be able to see everyone. Oh, you want to see, okay. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Do I need this light on? It is a bit distracting. Um, okay. Oh, it's fine. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Again, please forgive me for having to uh, have this weird sensation of talking to the folks here and talking to you simultaneously. Um, last time we, we did this and there were so many folks in the Zendo and the power of the energy here was just so dominating that I forgot that, <laughs> that our Sangha is here as well. So, and those of you who are on the screen, please forgive me for I wish one eyeball could, <laughs> the eyeballs could shed a switch. This morning, uh, I'd like to talk about um, this topic, a spiritual life. Um, I've been speaking with Sangha members lately um, about um, why they were drawn to Zen practice. And typically, people say, um, I just feel like things aren't quite right in my life. Um, sometimes it's articulated as um, my life is in unbalanced, uh, or there's, it seems like there's something missing. Um, it seems like uh, Things aren't just, they're just not right. And something needs to change. Something needs to happen. <laughs> um, Buddha shared this feeling, actually. And the more I thought about it, uh, hearing uh, Sangha members speak about, sometimes we, we speak about this as dukkha. This, Alan Watts calls it a kind of wiggliness. <laughs> uh, there's something wiggly about our life. It's just not quite the way it ought to be. And so we're drawn to search as Buddha did. You know, he had, he had the perfect life. Uh, he was a prince living in a palace with every possible desire satisfied. Um, all his sensual pleasures, and he had nothing to worry about. Uh, his, he was, his life was complete uh, from a, you know, sort of a capitalist perspective. He had it all, you know, he had all the toys. <laughs> and if he had died, he would have died with all the toys. But there was something in him that knew that there was something beyond the walls of the palace. And he wanted to go there. Um, why? You know, there was nothing in particular that he knew was out there, but he knew there was something more. There was something different from the way he was living. 
And so he managed to convince his uh, man Friday, <laughs> you know, his, his kind of servant to, uh, you know, saddle up <laughs> and get him out, get him out there and see what was going on out there. So this impulse to search, search for some perhaps, I don't know meaning, or I don't know experience, or something that brings life to completion and brings a deeper meaning to life is something that I think is kind of classic uh, for everyone to some degree. Although I have to say, I, I remember asking my elderly mother who lived here for a while, she was um, in her early nineties and we were driving one day and I said, mom, have you ever wondered what the purpose of life was? And she said, no. <laughs> I said, you mean you, you never asked yourself, I mean, why am I here? Or how, you know, what is this life all about? No, never, never did. It's just hard for me to believe. There might be one person that I've ever met, like my mother, who, um, I'm sorry, mom. Uh, <laughs> you're not supposed to gossip about people who aren't here, right? But this is a, just a very characteristic impulse, a very deep hu human impulse. So um, what did he see when he left the pleasure palace? Uh, he saw someone who was sick. He saw someone who was aged. He saw someone who was dead. And he also saw a monk. Um, but his first experiences outside the palace of pleasure, <laughs> uh, outside of this kind of mundane existence, which is driven so much by desire, by desire for a happy, good life, mainly materialist life, which is a lot of what we want. Um, he saw suffering. Those are the first experiences he ever had of real suffering. And we could say also that very often we don't actually experience the suffering of other people because we are imprisoned in our palace, in our ego palace, in our, you know, we know it's out there. We know people are suffering, but we don't get to experience it directly. So this experience that he had led him on a search. He, this was, it affected him. Uh, it, it kind of affected his heart. It wasn't that, you know, he was on a search for some intellectual truth. He was on a search for the relief of this heartbreak that he saw in the world. And of course he saw a monk as well, who seemed to be, uh, he seemed to be at peace. Um, and so this possibility that there was a way, there was a way of living that relieved suffering and that 
was a peaceful way was driving him on his search. So we could call this a spiritual search. But what does spiritual mean? We use that word a lot, and I do too. Uh, we say we have a spiritual practice. Well, Buddhist practice nothing to do really with anything mystical. Spiritual is not mystical, nor is it have anything to do with anything transcendent that is beyond this world, super mundane. We sometimes think of something spiritual as being beyond ordinary experience right? Something strange and uh, out of this world and, you know, and, and uh, um, otherworldly. And we're looking for this special experience that's sort of floating out there in the ether, spiritual. But the act of leaving the pleasure palace of the palace of ego and orienting yourself to the suffering of others, suffering in the world, that is spiritual. The spiritual act is the act of leaving the self-centered world and orienting yourself to everything else. And particularly, the suffering and the pain of everything else. That is all spiritual means. And if you think that's easy, think again. The spiritual life is the life of service. It's the life in which you exit the palace of the self and enter what we call in, in Zen, also in, in Chinese uh, uh, sutras, the empty field. Go from the palace of sensual delights and material existence into the empty field, this open, spacious, empty, it's unknown. So what happens when you leave your bubble, your, your little ego bubble, your little constructed self, and you step into emptiness, sunyata in, in Sanskrit. Yeah. This is the empty field of the unknown. What, what if it isn't all about me? What is it? What if it's all not all about me? Then what? So uh, I was talking to Ross the other day about stepping into the Doan role. And we talked about preparing for it. I don't know whether I'm prepared. And my question was well, when will you know? 
that you're prepared? When will you know that you're prepared to make that commitment to step out of this palace and into service, into a relationship which is oriented beyond your own personal ego? When will you be ready? We, there's a koan in Zen, and it's, uh, it's about how do you step off? A, you're on a hundred foot pole and you have one foot standing on the pole, the other foot's dangling. And what do you do? You know, you're, you're up there. It's like, okay, I got to make a decision. I have to do something. The whole, the whole, I'm entering an unknown world, right? What do you do? You jump. You jump, you fall, you just go. As we, we use the old woman uh, and, at Mount Wutai, right straight ahead. That's what you do. So it's not a practice of convenience, it's a practice of commitment. So how do you decide to enter this practice and continue? You can't figure it out. You have to do it. You just have to step in into it. Um, you know the story of Goldilocks and the three bears? Yeah. And Goldilocks comes into the cottage and she will take the porridge. And she looks at the porridge. Papa Bear's porridge, Mama Bear's porridge, and Baby Bear's porridge. She has to taste the porridge before she knows, ah, oh, this is just right. Yeah, this is just right. Too hot, too cold, just right. She can't know without tasting the porridge. Similarly with the chairs, you know, Goldilocks is, you know, she's a Zen, she's practicing Zen, you know, she's actually sitting down in the chairs, you know, and this, this one's too hard, this one's too soft, and I was talking with Sherry about finding your seat, right, um, takes five years, at least, so relax, everybody. <laughs> So you, you have to find what's right, just right. But you cannot do it by reading a book or even by listening to me or any other Dharma teacher. You have to do it. There's hesitancy. I have so many other things to do. Uh, I don't know whether this is this is going to be the right thing for me. And so I offer this, um, this quote from Gerta. Until one is committed, there is always hesitancy. The chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness, concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. 
that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising to one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no one could have dreamed would come her way. Whatever you can do or dream, you can begin it. Boldless, boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So in our ordinary life, we have to make decisions. Should I do this? Should I do that? And we deliberate as we should. You know, we consider the pros and cons and uh, the consequences of our different possibilities. It's not true in the spiritual life. Doesn't apply. How do you figure? How do you figure out when when it, uh, what you know what the best choice is? You, you just have to jump. There's no way of figuring it out beforehand. You just have to do it and then see. So Rumi says. Basically, leave the pleasure palace and empty, enter the empty field. Enter the empty field. There is a field beyond right and wrong, says Rumi. Meet me there. There is a field beyond right and wrong. Meet me there. We call these, these dualities the eight worldly dharmas. Right and wrong, pleasure and pain, winning and losing, praise and blame, fame and obscurity. This is what governs our lives. Pleasure, pain, win, lose, fame, fame, obscurity, right and wrong. The spiritual life is in the empty field beyond all of those. Beyond all of those dualities. Brenda shared um, a story with me about a swordsman, Miyamoto Musashi, who is a great Japanese swordsman, 17th century, I think, yeah. And he was the famous, most famous swordsman uh, in, in all of Japan. Yeah, I think he won something like 61 duels that overcame his opponents. And of course, everybody was wanting to challenge him uh, to, to, be, to, be, to get the gold medal, right? Get the gold medal in, in, um, in swordsmanship. And there was a, uh, he defeated everyone. Then there became a, a, uh, another uh, swordsman named Kojiro, who developed an incredibly effective strategy 
uh, for dealing with this, the, the duel. And he was known all, all over Japan also as someone who could challenge um, Musashi. And they did set up a, a time for dueling. And it was, I think, either one o'clock in the morning or midnight. And all the townspeople and all the officials, this was a profound event, you know, uh, something that would hardly ever be happen again. And these two amazing swordsmen were going to duke it out. And uh, Kojiro showed up with his strategy and they waited for Musashi to arrive. And he was hours, they were waiting and he didn't show up. And the thought was that he was too scared. <laughs> he had heard about Kojiro's um, skill in swordsmanship and he, he, wasn't, he, he didn't wanna risk his championship. And so he just stayed away. And there are two different versions to this story. Um, one is, and the one Brenda told me, was that they went searching for Musashi and they found him in his hut doing calligraphy. Just completely, <laughs> in modern jargon, we could say blowing it off. <laughs> <laughs> blowing off the whole thing. <laughs> but there's another version in which uh, Musashi was playing with the mind of Kojiro and he deliberately was late, but he did arrive. And Kojiro was so full of rage because of his ego, you know, that this man was keeping him waiting that he just threw down his shield and was prepared to fight using his rage to defeat Musashi. Throwing down that shield was not a good idea, <laughs> <laughs> but he did it out of anger and Musashi killed him. As soon as he dropped his shield, he killed him. And as he was leaving, he turned around and he looked at the dead Kojiro and realized that he had killed a very, very skilled swordsman. And that moment created an opening for him. He began to cry and his heart opened. And that was a moment of enlightenment. And from that point on, he let go of dueling completely. And so the way I'm interpreting this for our purposes today is that Musashi found his path into the empty field. He was able to go beyond winning and losing, beyond the eight worldly dharmas into that empty field 
beyond, beyond those dualities. And so in our practice, our practice, Hi. <laughs> I know somebody's there. Um, our practice is cultivating the empty field. What does that mean? It's an empty field. What does it mean to cultivate that? To, to make sure it continues to empty. <laughs> that it, it, that um, the other night, um, Domenica made this amazing meal for Brenda, me, and Joe. And we got into this conversation, right? <laughs> about, um, about special states, particularly about taking uh, psychedelic drugs or having these, um, you know, breakthrough experiences that are out of the ordinary. And Joe and Brenda and Dominica were just very open to the possibilities of what could happen under, under uh, a drug dose or under very strange circumstances and conditions that there could be some breakthrough experience. And I became very agitated and <laughs> about, about defending against uh, these so-called special experiences, particularly as they are uh, precipitated by drugs. And I realized I was becoming more and more agitated and uh, apologized to my dinner <laughs> companions <laughs> for maybe ruining the meal <laughs> because I, I was much more agitated than I usually become. But after our wonderful meal, I went home and I said to myself, Mado, you have so much furniture in your field. <laughs> there are landmines in your field. <laughs> your field is full of debris. <laughs> you, know? you have no idea how much furniture, how much debris, how much junk, how much old you know, stuff you have in there. And you, you better start cultivating that empty field again. You better start weeding, <laughs> better start weeding, better start paying attention to this. I end with um, this story about our lineage holder, Kobenchino Roshi, uh, which you've heard before. And he was, he was a master archer. Um, and he was invited to Esalen, which is a sort of a high-end <laughs> high retreat center in California. He was invited there to, uh, for an archery demonstration. And they brought in, uh, again, a, a, one of the top archers in Japan to uh, demonstrate uh, their archery skills to the retreatants at uh, Esalen. And they set up a, um, a bullseye, they set up an, a target um, way beyond near the Pacific Ocean, 
um, over some hills. And they set up the archers, uh, maybe it was maybe a hundred, couple of hundred feet from the from the bull, from the target. And the first archer got up and he drew his bow and sure enough, it hit right in the center of the target. Everybody was clapping and thinking, how is, how is Coben, our lineage holder, going to match that? And Coben comes up and he takes his bow and pulls the, pulls the string and the bow and the, and the arrow just flies over the hill right into the Pacific Ocean. And Coben screams, bullseye! Coben was aiming for the empty field. He was aiming for the empty field and he got it. He got it. And that's what our practice aims for. Stop recording. Oh. Yes. Stop recording. Yes. <laughs> yes.